Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. All right, <clears throat> let's look to the Word. So as I mentioned, back in Revelation, as we dive back in here after a few weeks uh, off of, or away from this study, uh, we are coming back to chapter 11. And where we're at here in chapter 11 is we are still in the middle of what we would call a parenthetical chapter. We've sort of paused from the sequential order of events that unfold in Revelation. And that's what happens throughout Revelation. You have, uh, you'll have a few chapters that are uh, sort of John uh, recording this revelation as events are kind of unfolding and progressing and then it'll sort of pause and take a step back and maybe look back a little or look in further to one of those events and so we're in the midst of that right now and um, we're looking here at what is happening uh, during this time and uh, then we'll start to look we in in 11 here we look back a little bit and then we start to look forward and what we're looking at is what takes place during the three series of judgments that God has unleashed on planet Earth. Uh, this includes then the seals of chapter 6, the opening of the seals, the trumpets of chapters 8 through 9, and then the bowls of chapter 16. So we're going to touch on a little bit of all of that. And so as we embark then on chapter 11, we're returning here at the beginning to the final woe before the blowing of the seventh trumpet in verse 15, okay? So, and when we get there in verse 15 and we see the trumpet blow, the seventh trumpet blow, that only lasts for four verses in terms of kind of that moment. And then we go right back into another parenthetical section up really until chapter 15, where the chronological events will continue again. And that's really then going to encompass primarily the pouring out of the bowls or the vials of wrath. So uh, there's not a quiz on that. <laughs> I know that can be a little confusing, but basically what we're looking at tonight is we're, we're kind of deep diving into events that are happening while the trumpets are blowing and judgment is coming upon the earth. As we consider chapter 11, just a reminder here that we're going to continue to, at least as it makes sense, take a literal interpretation of Revelation, right? So as with much of Revelation, there are numerous debates over the content, uh, even the content that we'll consider tonight. There are many things uh, or maybe even questions that we may have that we just don't have the answer to, right? We're going to look tonight at the two witnesses. That's what we encounter very quickly in this chapter. And there's a lot of opinions as to who or what the two witnesses are. I certainly have strong opinions, but the Word doesn't tell us. It just flat out doesn't tell us. And so we can't say definitively it is this, or they are these people, or, or what have you. But I do feel strongly that we can say, and we'll get into this, that they are people as opposed to structures or systems that some people uh, will occasionally suggest. And so when we say literal interpretation, if the Bible is treating these witnesses as if they are people, we are going to then take the same approach that they are people. But, pe but these things are debated. People debate these things. And so we just have to be comfortable with that uh, as we go through this study. So anyhow, uh, let's jump back into it here. Let's go ahead and read together verses 1 and 2 from chapter 11. This is John again. The Apostle John, he says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. 
So here, John writes the beginning of chapter 11, he says, then. So we do know that John here is, he's continuing to write things in terms of the order that it happens to him. And so as he picks up here, this is following, and this is sort of an obvious statement, yes, this is following verse 11 of chapter 10, the previous verse, but more than just the order of the verses here, John, as we see there, if you look back just quickly to the end of chapter 10, you see that John was again commissioned, right? Chapter 10 ended, and John was commissioned once again to prophesy. He was told, we see this here, and he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So this encouragement was given to John. This came after he consumed the little book. He consumed the word of God. And then he says, and then, then I was given a reed. Okay, so he's given a, a reed or a rod or a measuring reed. Um, this is sort of like a modern yardstick. Okay, he's given something here by which he can measure. And he's told to measure specific parts of the temple, with the exception of the outer court, as that has been given to the Gentiles, it says. And the holy city here is to be understood as Jerusalem. Now, the measuring of something in Scripture, why is he being asked to measure it? Um, The measuring of something in Scripture often indicates possession of something, ownership of something, dominion over something, judgment over something. And so we have other examples of where something was measured in Scripture. A couple that uh, might come to mind are Zechariah 2. Uh, There is a man that's seen measuring Jerusalem, and it indicates there God's divine judgment upon Jerusalem. There's another in Ezekiel chapter 40. It really goes from 40 to, I think, 42, where the temple is measured there with a reed. And then later in Revelation, we'll see that Jerusalem is measured. And we're given some specificity of those measurements later on in Revelation. So John is tasked then with measuring the temple. So when you read this, here's the thing. When when you read here that he is tasked with measuring the temple, there's... There's one question that often comes to mind then in this moment. What temple? Right? Might you think, what, what temple exactly? And why, why would we ask what temple? Because there's not a temple. There's no temple today. Right? There's no temple. We know that there have been two temples on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem throughout history. One was built by Solomon, right? It was later destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then after that, there was another one built when Artaxerxes gave the command for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and begin the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall. And so there was another that was built by Zerubbabel. And then it was uh, after that, it was sort of uh, not remodeled, but it was enlarged. It was kind of enhanced by Herod the Great. But that temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans, and there hasn't been one since. So what temple is being referred to here? Enter in now the debates, right? I mean, right from the very beginning of, of, of Revelation 11 starts all these debates around, well, what, what's happening here? Now, some suggest that this is metaphorical, that there's not really a temple that he is measuring, but that rather this is speaking of the church, that here John is sort of measuring or uh, showing ownership of uh, or over the church. You know, Jesus referred to himself as the temple. Um, The church is referred to as the sanctuary or the inhabitants of the Holy Spirit. We just saw this recently in our study of 1 Corinthians. But I don't think, personally, I don't think that is in view here. Again, a more literal approach I would say that this is, in fact, a temple, the temple. I believe that the temple will be rebuilt during the time of the tribulation in the last days going into the tribulation. There's some debate there over timing. Uh, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, 
Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That's one of a handful of verses that we could look at that seem to suggest that there will be a temple in this time. One specifically that the Antichrist will set himself up in to be worshipped. That is the abomination of desolation. And so this statement suggests that the temple will be rebuilt and the Antichrist will make a promise to resume temple worship, temple sacrifice, but there will come a point in that process where this will end and he will set himself up to be worshipped as God. Here's the thing, already in Israel, how many of you have heard of the Temple Institute? Okay, I see a couple of hand, few hands there. There is ongoing research. Right now, you could just Google Temple Institute. It'll bring up an actual site. You can follow it. Um, you can follow, they put out blogs regularly. There's people working there. There is regular effort work to prepare for the time when the temple will be rebuilt. Now, what are some of the things that they need to prepare for? Well, they need to have a high priest. And you can't just pick anybody off the street. There's a process. There's a, there's, you have to kind of be a certain person to be a high priest. And so there's genealogical work that's been done to identify. And in fact, they've named and even identified already a high priest. There's specific garments that need to be uh, created. They were working on that. There is a particular animal that is sort of the, the top of the line sacrifice for ultimate purity to ascend the Temple Mount. Anybody know what that animal is? A red heifer. If you go right now, if you go to Temple Institute, if you go to the site, there's a big thing there right now on their updates. It's as recently of, as uh, March where they said, here's some updates on the... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, breeding of a... red. Did somebody say that? Okay, thanks. It's like, did it just... Was it there? It was really there. Thank you. Pulled it. Uh, there's the breeding of the red heifer. I mean, they are working. They're getting ready for this. Now, it doesn't. I'm not encouraging you to go to this site and take everything that they're doing as like, oh, you know, be, and being like, they're, you know, they're cheerleader. I got to get involved in this work. It's just interesting to see what's happening. And a lot of times too, in this temple research, you'll hear you'll hear accounts of hey, it's going to happen. We're going to lay that first cornerstone on the Temple Mount. It's going to happen this year. There's been many times where people have suggested like that work is underway. And I, I, don't, I don't know about that. Um, I think that these events are going to be um, largely a part of the uh, end times and the work of the Antichrist. And that's part of what I think will get uh, many people to follow him. His promises, yes, of peace, but of uh, making a way for the rebuilding of the temple there on the Temple Mount, and uh, and so, but again, today you got Orthodox Jews that are expecting and are ready for a third temple to be built. And as I mentioned, it's on the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount, if you don't if you don't really pay attention to this, what you need to understand is that more than anywhere in the world, the Temple Mount is is truly the most tense contested place in the world. I mean, do we understand that? The Temple Mount, there is no other place in the world. I mean, and, and, and it's interesting right now that I would say this, and even though this isn't really anything new, but of course, top of mind right now, no doubt, is Ukraine and the invasion there and everything that's happening. And so we know that there's like some land there in that area that's obviously contested or uh, sought after. But not in the way that the Temple Mount is. And in, in any, anywhere else in the world where people have sought after land, it's for a variety of reasons such as uh, oil, uh, various natural resources, um, geographical lines that were maybe different in history and they want to reestablish that again. Nowhere... Nothing else is like the Temple Mount where it's where you basically have three faith groups that are saying this is this is land that belongs to our God. And there there's that kind of connection to it and then because of that less so on the part of the Christian faith 
we know the history tied to it, but there's less of a claim that's, you know, to, to seek after possession. That's more between the, the Jews and the Muslims. But because of that, because of this, this land, this, is, this belongs to God, then, of course, there is just absolutely an, an unwillingness to relinquish hold of it, right? You can sort of negotiate some peace for a period of time. Hey, we won't kill each other right now over it. But we're not going to walk away and say, eh, never mind. It's not going to happen. Anybody ever been to the Temple Mount before? Okay. I don't know what your opinion of, of it was. When, you, when, you're, when you're elsewhere in Israel and you're looking at the Temple Mount, I found myself to just kind of be in awe because you're just like, well, there it is. And then there's different places you go in Israel that have different feelings, if you want to call it that. The Temple Mount, I did not, I did not enjoy being on the Temple Mount. I don't know about you. You, you, go, you go up there, and it's just, there's not a sense of peace there, right? One of the places in, in Jerusalem that I found to be the most peaceful were both the Jewish and Christian quarters. And especially because you go through the, you, you can make your way um, through the Muslim quarter, and that just feels absolutely chaotic. It's dark. It's oppressive. And you come out of that and you just, you literally, you walk out from that and you walk into light and you walk into quietness and you walk into peace. And so there are different parts of Jerusalem and the, the old city and places where you go where sometimes you're like, oh man, this, this feels different. Um, for me, the Temple Mount was, was that way. Now I enjoyed very much being on the Mount of Olives looking over at it. That was like, this is beautiful. And you make your way down and you can go into the garden. and um, It's just, it, it, it's interesting. By the way, we're in the process right now of working on another trip to Israel. So if anybody is so inclined, um, think, think 2023, but probably early and we're waiting to hear back from the travel agents on that. So if somebody's so inclined, start putting your pennies away. Okay, uh, We'll do our best to keep it as affordable as possible. We are planning for another one. Um, so... <clears throat> So John here, if he's, if he's measuring all of this, and if in fact measuring is to some degree certainly a symbol of ownership, but even of God's judgment, well then think about what's being measured, right? The temple of God, the altar, the worshipers, the people. Um, he has authority, and we're going to see this at the end of the chapter. He's, he's got authority over all these things, okay? So we have to understand here. And we're reminded of this again and again throughout our study of Revelation, that God is in control. Amen? And we continue to be pointed back to, to this. And I, and I think it's so much, I, I'm grateful to the Lord and the Holy Spirit for how Revelation is written because it's heavy. Right? We know this, it's a heavy book. And we see just devastation, but there's, in the midst of it all, there's always this, there's God's mercy being demonstrated towards the people who are under judgment, but then it's also like it gives us this, this, this pause, this, uh, this moment to sort of pull back, and in the midst of all the chaos we see, to go, hey, I, he, I'm, I've got this. I'm in control, right? And so I think it's an encouragement. I take it as an encouragement uh, to us as well. So I mentioned worshipers then. There's people who are worshiping here. And we should ask then too, not just what, what's this temple, but who are these people who are worshiping? And, and these are Jewish people who are worshiping. Again, I think the Bible is clear that God is not done with Israel. You can't read, and I know, I understand that there people take this view. There is a view that has um, become sort of uh, prevalent once again of replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel and God's covenant plan. And I just don't think, I don't believe that that is the case. I think the Bible is clear, Romans especially, that God is not done with Israel. And, and, and so they play a huge role then in the end times, in this seven-year tribulation, and then in the millennial reign. And so 
they are there. There are Jewish people that are here worshiping in the last days. But what we see is that persecution is going to come against them by the Gentiles of the day. Now, John is not told then, in light of this, he's, he's told not to measure the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, because the Gentiles will trample it underfoot for 42 months. Now, what's significant about 42 months? Well, if you take 30 day, if you if you consider these 30 day months, this then gives you a period of three and a half years, half the time of a seven year tribulation. So what we see is that these three and a half years and some people ask, well, are these the first three and a half years of the tribulation or the second three and a half years of the tribulation? Well, Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are are fulfilled. Well, if this is the first half, if the three and a half years here or the uh, 42 months were the first half, this would create a problem because in the first half of the tribulation, we're told that there is relative peace that is experienced during that time. But as we see here, this is not peace. This is not describing peace. This is severe persecution that's going to unfold. And so, and furthermore, I believe that the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, uh, precedes then um, the second coming of Jesus. And so it's my belief, and I'm certainly not alone in this camp, that this would be the second half of the seven-year tribulation. And, uh, and that this would come after the abomination of desolation. So the Antichrist would set himself up to be worshipped in the temple and it would then, what would then follow is tremendous persecution that comes from the Gentiles against uh, the Jews that are worshipping here. And so then, verse, let's go ahead and read verses 3 through 6. It says, And I will give, verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So we're introduced now here to two witnesses who are given power by God, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, again at 30 days per month. This is 42 months or three and a half years. So once again, is this the first or the second half? Well, based on the punishment that is inflicted by these two witnesses or prophets, I would say that this is the second half of the tribulation. And to me, that aligns then as we make our way towards the blowing of the seventh trumpet uh, and everything that will follow from that, that we're getting towards the end of the tribulation. And so these two witnesses, of course, everybody wonders, who are they? Who are these two witnesses? Well, they're described as two olive trees and the two lampstands. So that tells us everything, right? Good to go. <clears throat> well, looking back once again to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah records, Now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened, and awakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And so I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. And so I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. In verse 6, so he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, 
says the Lord of hosts. And so what we see here, as they're referred to in this way, is that these two witnesses are going to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they will share the word of the Lord, and they'll fulfill their prophetic office, their job, by proclaiming the word of the Lord until, and, and, and not at any other point, but until their ministry and their testimony is complete. They're going to come and do exactly what God has called them to do. And despite attempts on their lives, despite many attempts from many to kill them, they will in essence be invincible until their work is done. Who are they? Again, we ask the question, who are they? Well, we know that the Greek the Greek language here refers to them in the masculine, and so that certainly helps us to understand that these are likely two men. But as I mentioned, there's much speculation as to who these men are. Yet the word, as I mentioned at the beginning, does not tell us specifically. Now some say that these are symbolic, that, they're, that these two witnesses are not specifically two individuals, but they're symbolic of Israel and the church. Uh, or So... But, both either either they're both indicative of Israel or they're indicative of the church and Israel and uh, or Israel and the word as and the, and the reason that people think about this is because they're thinking in terms of well who might be witnesses that are there at this time who might be functioning in that capacity well we know that there are Jewish people who have now um, professed faith in Christ, and so um, they are there. We know that there are, there are thousands of Jews who are going to be serving as evangelists during this time, and so some say it's just symbolic of them. Okay, But what, what John records here in this chapter is very much specific to two individuals, even as we'll see here shortly, that they are killed and that their bodies are going to lay in the streets for three and a half days. So uh, others, myself included, would say that these are specific individuals, and then the question continues, right? Well, what, what individuals are they? Well, as I read there, there's probably, as I read about what powers they're given or the things that they will do, does it sound familiar to anybody in history? Who? Moses and Elijah, right? Power to hold up heaven, to with, withhold rain from the earth, power to turn the water to blood. I mean, we've seen some of these things before. We've heard some of these things before. And so certainly a lot of people say, this is Moses and Elijah, also representative of the law and the prophets. They were the ones that were with Jesus. Uh, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so if you're somebody who says, look, I think that this is Moses and Elijah, you're in, you're in good company. There's a lot of people with you on that. I don't know that we, we certainly couldn't say that that's wrong. Some, however, say, no, 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 that's not Moses, but it's Enoch and Elijah. Why might they say it's Enoch and Elijah? Because those are the two people that never died. And it's appointed a man once to die, so clearly God's going to use these two that he just miraculously took up because he said, i got work for you guys later. And so you can't die yet because you're going to die later on. Oh, great. Um, i got a special death for you two. Uh, because we'll see, it, it, it is indeed just that. There's probably, apart from Christ, of course, um, but certainly differently at this particular time, there's, there, there may be no other deaths that are quite as captivating to the entire world as the death of these two witnesses. Um, so again, a lot of debate here, right? And, but then some people go, yeah, but, but Moses, Moses died, but he died in kind of a unique way. What was unique about Moses' death? He went up to a mountain, God said, it's time, he sort of just laid down, and then what happened with his bones? Or his body? Satan came and contended with Michael, the archangel, over possession of his body, did he not? So then people are like, oh, that's kind of interesting, right? Maybe Satan wanted it because of this. But I look at that one and I say, eh, I don't know. And there is something, there's something unusual about that in Scripture that we see that there was like this desire. But then that also to me suggests that Satan maybe has more foreknowledge than what he probably should have. Um, I don't know. You can, you can have your opinions. Many of you probably do. Um, 
Some people say that these are new prophets. There's none of these other people. These are new, two new prophets that God raises up during this time. And, and of course, we see in verses 5 and 6 that the powers they have are similar as we've already established to Moses and Elijah, but nothing in Scripture says that that was reserved just for them. Right? Yes. Um, uh, help me out with that. Uh, which was to John. Yeah. Yeah, they're um, there after they have breakfast on the, along the shore. Uh, Jesus is talking to Peter and basically saying to Peter as he's referencing John, what, what's up with, what, what is it to you if he lives longer than you do? Um, so there's, there's that, but yeah. What's that? Yeah, everybody but John at this point, and, and they tried to kill John over and over again. So John, I think, probably as he sees the revelation of these witnesses, maybe has, and even as he writes this, pens this, I think John probably has an awareness of like, until God's done, you're not done. Right? Because he knew that, and many times they attempted him, attempted to kill him. Peter, James, and John. Oh, maybe. Yeah, exactly. There's some things he... <laughs> you see where we can go with this? Um, so, uh, where am I at here? So anyhow, yeah. So, continuing on verse 7, it says, when they finish their testimony... And that's the important thing. And guys, I do think that this has, I think that this is bearing for us. I really do. I know some people struggle with this and I get it because of what we see. And so often we're, in, so often we, we say things like when someone, when someone dies and it's, and it's not a sort of on their deathbed at an old age, we're inclined to go, man, it was before their time. It's so sad that we lost them before their time. And I don't know that that's fair. I don't think that that's fair for us to say. I'm not trying to condemn that, but such a statement suggests somehow that God isn't in control. And, and again, I'm not, if, please understand me. We see these things. We see death. We see stuff that just from our perspective doesn't make sense. And what we wrestle with then is, okay, God, I know you're in control, but if you are in control of this, which I, I know that you are, but yet I'm struggling because what I see happening here seems entirely out of your control. Right? And, and we, can, we can certainly survey Scripture and don't have the time to do that here tonight around what of someone who seemingly dies at an unexpected time. What is God doing in that? And there's some people that have some strong opinions that maybe, maybe that was God's grace. Maybe that was His mercy by taking someone home early uh, based off of a, a, you know, a, a path that they were on. And we got Q&A next week. We can tackle that one if you want. Um, I think, in fact, we have tackled that one before. Um, but I do, I, I, I feel strongly, um, what was his, uh, Elliot, mission to the, uh, George Elliot, thank you. I, was, I, was, I knew his wife, I was Elizabeth Elliot, what's, what's her husband's name? Um, he, he felt strongly about this. He said, look, God is not going to take me home until, it's my t- until my mission is finished, until my testimony is complete. Right? And so here we see verse 7, when they finished their testimony. And so when they finished, when, when, when what God had given them to share and to communicate is finished, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So then you see this and you're like, oh my goodness, now they've lost. They've been overcome, they've been killed. 
In verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So this is Jerusalem. And then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth, unbelievers, will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth, the unbelievers. So here the prophet's ministry comes to an end, just like those before them. God allows them, I believe, to be overcome. And they're overcome by the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. This, we believe, is Satan himself who comes from the pit to make war with them and destroy them. But this does not happen until they finish their testimony. 1,260 days of tormenting people on the earth, giving their testimony, prophesying against them over and over again. They've got powers from God, and people want them dead so badly that once they finally are, it becomes this worldwide holiday. The two prophets are dead day. Let's buy each other gifts. And so here then, as the beast comes out of the bottomless pit, this is now going to be the first of 36 references to the beast through the end of Revelation. So now as we get really into the second half of Revelation, we start to see much more of a uh, discussion of Satan. He begins to be more evident, uh, play an evident role as we're preparing for Christ's second coming. So when they're killed, they're not going to be allowed to put their bodies into graves, even though the law of Moses allows for even the worst of people to be buried. So in an ultimate show of disrespect, they're going to leave these two witnesses in the street for three and a half days. I do think that this is a literal three and a half days. Um, if it were years, then that would kind of throw off the timeline for the tribulation. And um, this is going to backfire on them, leaving them there in the street. And so uh, three and a half days, the world is celebrating. Okay, They're celebrating, and here they are lying in the streets of Jerusalem. It's referred to as Sodom and Egypt. Sodom being the sort of uh, poster of, of immorality, Egypt of slavery and oppression and the things of the world. And the whole world is watching this. They're celebrating this because of how they've been uh, tormented by them. And so um, it's, it's pretty amazing uh, just to see here the, the depravity of man celebrating the, the the death of these individuals, letting their bodies just lay in the street, and they think, man, this is like a new Christmas holiday. Let's give gifts to one another. Now, and this is one of the things a lot of people like to just sort of talk about, I guess you could say, is like, how does everybody see them? I mean, think about this. This is interesting, right? If you take, if you go a hundred years ago, people didn't really have a concept of like how in the world is the entire world watching this. And this then prompted a lot of uh, wrong views, if you will, of Revelation trying to figure out how are we going to make this happen. And then comes along something called the, the landing on the moon that people were able to watch all over the place, right? It was just this sort of miraculous thing. And of course, the technological advancement since then to us, it's not a strange concept at all to think that we're all just, we're watching this thing go down, right? And, and so it's not a difficult thing for us now to understand how in the world can the world be observing them just laying there in the streets of Jerusalem and everybody's celebrating this. And... Uh, and it does, it just, I mean, this should sort of break our hearts, cause us to just really be aware of just how wicked mankind is. And then certainly with the church removed, a dwindling number of people here who will even consider repentance, and they see a beast come from the pit of hell and wipe out these prophets who have been proclaiming the Word of God, and they celebrate it. And so this is why we have to also understand, we talked about this last time, that like by the end of this, 
as heartbreaking as it is, there's going to be no doubt that every person who is condemned to hell will have absolutely chosen that path. Not that a loving God created them for that, but know that a loving God that pursued them over and over and over again, that they turned their back on Him, right? And because then they have left their bodies in the streets and all are watching, what happens next is pretty awesome. Verse 11, Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Can you even imagine as people are in their Three days of celebrating that these guys are dead and they're just all ecstatic and who knows what kind of partying is going on and everybody's like, you watching this thing? I can't take my eyes off of this. We're all watching the feet of these people and they're just continuing to rejoice and all of a sudden, and they get up. And it's like, you have got to be kidding me. I mean, people have got to be freaking out. I don't know what this is going to be like, but they got to absolutely be freaking out. And they heard a loud voice from heaven, verse 12, saying to them, come up here. And now they ascend to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. So people see them ascend to heaven. And in that same hour, there's a great earthquake that happens where a tenth of the city falls apart and 7,000 people are dead. I mean, this has to bring that party to its end, right? Party's over. Major buzzkill, right? Now, here's the cool part. Though there was 7,000 people that were killed, it says the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So even in the midst of the wickedness that we see, this event gets some people's attention. Verse 14, And the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So man, it is, it, it is coming. Uh, it, time is now making its way towards its end. After three and a half days, God breathes life into these witnesses again. They ascend into heaven. And, and, and these people, it says the rest... Uh, they they are afraid and they gave glory to God of heaven to the God of heaven. I think that this is a significant conversion of many people. That's my opinion. To glorify God, this is the goal. This is the goal of mission. And uh, I think what we see here is a revival of sorts that's happening. And so what this should do, because remember what I said, we see horrible things happen and then there's mercy. And horrible things happen and mercy. Or horrible things and then a reminder, God's at work. God's at work. And this for us tonight should be the encouragement. God's in control. God is faithful. God is working. God loves His people, right? And so God is still merciful, and He's using every opportunity to win the hearts of people. But sadly, not all repent. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And so in verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And so the seventh angel sounded, but what happens here now is that there's rejoicing coming from heaven as the seventh seal. And so here's what we have to understand in terms of how this goes. The seventh seal brought the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is blown, and it will bring the seven bowls. And with the seventh bowl, all will come to an end. And so we're getting towards that time. We're nearing that point. And so again here now, there are loud voices in heaven proclaiming that the the world has become the Lord's, and He shall reign forever. There's starting to be cries here of victory. And so the time is coming. The end is near. And while there are some events still to unfold, heaven is beginning to, to declare that God reigns over all. Verse 16, And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. We've seen this before. And so what we know here is that the redeemed in heaven 
are worshiping God as John now looks to the throne room in heaven again and they begin to sing. So now they're worshiping God and they begin to sing. What are they singing? Verse 17, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the One who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. This is less about them destroying the earth physically, but rather that their sin has brought such destruction on the earth. And so what we see here, again, and this has been unfolding, but that question of how long, Lord? And not just the question of the martyrs there in the throne room, but even the question of people here today, right? How long, Lord? How long? Well, it's beginning to be answered with this. And it's being answered with great finality. And so this, because of what God is doing, is even as, even as horrific as some of it is, that it is seen how merciful God is, how in control He is, how powerful He is, and so it's cause for rejoicing. But it is also sobering because we know that though God is just, He does not delight in this. He doesn't delight in this. He desires that none would perish. And here, I think it's just, this is, this is so cool to me. Verse 19 is one of the coolest verses because here in the midst of all this, in the midst of judgment, and in the midst of, of such wickedness, and then in the midst of, of death and destruction, in verse 19, during this worship event, this time of praise, it says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. And so again here, why is this so cool? Why do you like this verse so much? Well, judgment is being poured out on the earth. Lightning, thunder, earthquakes, hail are all signs of judgment. But in the midst of this, what happens for the redeemed in heaven? And remember, I believe, I, I believe I'm going to be there. I'm going to be observing this. And you, if you're a believer, I believe you're going to be there too. And so we're going to be experiencing all of this. And in the midst of what is... And this, these are the things, right? Like so many people have asked the question of how can we be experiencing all of this and know that people are dying, people are rejecting the Lord, but yet we're worshiping. Well, we have greater understanding, but remember what I just said. We, we, we know that all throughout... God is merciful. God is faithful. People are rejecting Him. And so here in the midst of all of these things, what happens for the redeemed in heaven, but that the temple of God is opened, contrasted with the one that is on earth. And remember, when the tabernacle was established, it was understood that these things were pictures of that which was in heaven. So I do believe that there is a temple in heaven. And it opens up, and what do they see? They see the ark. They see the ark. Well, what's significant about this? Well, it's the mercy seat. In the midst of all this judgment, the redeemed in heaven are given a vision into the temple and they see the ark, the mercy seat. In the midst of judgment comes the very place where the high priest and only the high priest could go and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. It's the object also in the temple that, as I've mentioned, the only the high priest, nobody could go. Nobody could see it. But yet here for the redeemed in heaven, it's being opened up and it's this reminder that Jesus, because of his work upon the cross, has torn the veil. We all have access. And so there now John and the rest of the redeemed in heaven are thinking, look what we see. In the midst of all this, we see the picture and the reminder of his mercy. We see something that we weren't allowed to see before because we weren't right with God. We weren't, we weren't in a position where because of our sinfulness we could come before him, but now we can because we're covered. And so here again, it's just one thing after the other after the other where God says, look, I'm in control and I've covered you and I've redeemed you. I've made a way for you. Here he says, let me give you a reminder of my grace and my mercy. And notice here it says it's his, his temple, his covenant. And it's this reminder that he's faithful. He's in control. He's victorious. He wins. Amen? 
And so I love, I love the patterns that these go through here because it's like, you know, you, you get to this place where you're like, whoa. But then God says, but look, I'm in control and I'm, and I'm faithful and I'm merciful and I'm gracious. And he reminds us over and over again of his character. And I think for us, guys, like as we look at this here, and I know, like, you know when we read a book like Revelation, as we study this, we know that these are future events, but these are, these are future events, yes, but about a God who is the same today, right? He's not suddenly, there's not, a, there's not a time here, even though now in heaven they're beginning to just kind of rejoice over who he is, but there's not, there's not a point in here where he's suddenly like, oh, okay, now, I, now I, got, I, I got my power back. And we go, oh, well, let's look forward to that time when, when God gets his power back from Satan. No, he's got it now. He's in control now. And all these things are unfolding in accordance with his plan and his purposes and his time. And so for us, beyond just the excitement and understanding and the excitement that comes from understanding as we look toward these times, there's the opportunity for us tonight to just be reminded that, man, He's faithful. He's a faithful God. He's merciful. He's in control. Right? And so there's nothing as, 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 as difficult as sometimes various circumstances are that we're facing there's no reason for us to question, God, are you in control? Are you aware? Do you know? Right? He's got it. And he's going to bring all of these things to the rightful place. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for our time together here this evening. Lord, as always, we pray that it's pleasing to you and, and that it bears fruit in us, Lord. And so we thank you for your word and we thank you for this word, Lord, as you give us insight into things yet to come. And in all of that, Lord, as difficult as some of these things are, just the continual, remi- continual reminder, Lord, of your grace, of your mercy, of your faithfulness, of your love for us, your care for us. Um, Lord, you're so, so good. And uh, Lord, continue to just draw our attention, Lord, unto you. May our hearts, our minds, our eyes, Lord, be fixed upon you. May we look to you always. And... Um, Lord, just continue to uh, give us an excitement, Lord, for the things of you and uh, a boldness, Lord, to tell a lost world about you. Um, And so, Lord, uh, stir our hearts in that way. Um, Bless each of these here tonight, Lord, as they follow after you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good night. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit our website at ccnortheast.org.